Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, Adam Proctor, coming off of a two-week hiatus. I took Labor Day weekend off, and prior to that, I released an old interview that I had with Alfie Brown, a nice short but sweet addition to my new hot takes and field notes segment that I'm running here on the Dead Pundit Society. But this week I'm back and I'm feeling fresh, I'm rested, and I've got a great interview to bring to all of you. Uh, It's one that I did several weeks ago, but it's still incredibly relevant as it probably will be for all time, unfortunately. Joining me this week is Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. She's the author of a book that came out this past spring. It's really great, and it will be obvious as to why I had her on the show. The book is called The Perils of Privilege. She's going to break down uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of privilege politics and privilege theory and the way that it's affected the progressive center and far left over the past, you know, nine or ten years or some kind of nonsense like that. So it's a really good interview. It was a challenge for me, though. I did an interview similar to this for you diehard dead pundits out there. You will remember the interview that I did with Eric Levitz. We talked about uh, the woke neoliberal collective or something along those lines. It's been so many months ago now, I hardly uh, remember. I think that was in the second month of the show, if I'm not mistaken, last spring. And, you know, the, that was it was a challenge to talk to Eric because he's a brilliant guy. But he was also far more, I would say, like closer to the center than my average guest you know, on a weekly basis. Most of my guests that I have on the show are raving communists, right? We're all sort of like fire-breathing Marxists, and we don't have a whole lot of time for what goes on in, you know, the liberal media, uh, the mainstream, more mainstream liberal think piece style social media sect, right? Well, Phoebe is very similar to that, right? She's a good principled progressive. She has really fantastic politics. Uh, But, you know, her politics are probably more heterodox, I would say, than my own. Um, She even opens up at one point in the interview saying that she she supported uh, Hillary Clinton early on in the campaign. I presume that she doesn't now, uh, based on a lot of the things that she's said. She supports a lot of Bernie Sanders' policies. But so the point being is that, you know, Phoebe was a very complicated person to interview, but it was good because it's, it's, it's good. It's really important, people. It's important to talk to people with whom you do not completely agree all the time. So Phoebe was able to challenge me and pull me out of my comfort zone in some really key areas. Um, you'll listen to the interview and for the, like I said, for frequent listeners of the show, you'll probably pull out a couple places where you'll say, Ooh, I don't know if I really agree with her there or Ooh, Adam's not going to like that. <laughs> and you know, that might be true. And I'm sure I'd said some things that maybe, uh, you know, made her, uh, you know, uh, look the other way or hold her breath or roll her eyes or whatever, whatever it is that people do when they're not sure of the intentions or, or the statements of the person they're talking to. 
but it was a really productive exchange and she's a lovely person, a brilliant intellect, and I'm glad that I had her on the show. You all are going to really enjoy this. So because I've been gone for a week or two, I decided to put the whole interview up for free of charge. But as always, if you like the show, you want to support it, you want to get a lot of access to subscriber-only content, check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Smash that subscribe button for $5 a month or $8 a month. You will get access to all of the subscription uh, content. I put uh, extended footage up there uh, almost every week now. There's a lot of stuff that's going up there, a lot of great stuff. You're not going to want to miss it. Support the show. Build a new left agenda. Uh, I've got a great series coming up starting next week. It is my Socialism for Regular Ass People series. And the name says it all. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, we here on the left and the Dead Pundit Society, we're we're not excluded from this. We use a lot of jargon, uh, a lot of big words. We talk a lot about intra-left debate. And I think all of that's really important in its own context. But, you know, we really need to start talking about socialism for regular ass people. Big ups to the normies. We got to win them over to the project. And we can do it because our message is for the masses. So... That's going to start next week. If you want to support that project, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. Smash the subscribe button. Check me out on uh, at Twitter. I'm at deadpundits on Twitter. You can, you can uh, if you never stop posting or you want to harass me on Twitter like most folks do, head on over there. Have at it. Check me out on Facebook. You can search for the Dead Pundit Society. Press the follow button and you'll get all the updates there. So, without further ado... Here's my interview with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. It's about an hour and a half long. We get down into the nitty-gritty. I think you're really going to like it. So, buckle up. Here it is. Enjoy. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. She is a writer and political commentator from Toronto. She holds a PhD from NYU in French. And more pertinent to today's interview, she is the author of the book, The Perils of Privilege. Phoebe, thanks for joining us on the Dead Planet Society. Thanks, Adam. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Actually, a friend and listener recommended your book to me uh, several months ago, uh, after I had Angela Nagel on, on the podcast, a uh, really great episode there. She's the author of Kill All Normies. And we were talking about the toxicity of online left subcultures back in around 2012 or 2013. It sort of feels like ancient history, but it wasn't really that long ago. Uh, but the world has really moved on in, in really substantial and meaningful ways since then. So it kind of seems archaic and old fashioned now to think about the toxicity of that call out moment. Um, and I think a lot of people are in disbelief. A lot of people who voted for Bernie and are joining DSA and other, uh, you know, active on Twitter right now, they've only been on the left for a couple of years. And so that's just not an experience that they have under their belt. So your book speaks to that. Uh, I think that's why it's so important. So maybe take us back to the, to that time. Take us back to 2010, uh, 2012, 2013, if you don't mind. Sure. So the aim of the book is really to talk about stories from mainly um, from online, um, from the period just before Twitter really took off and sort of connecting those stories from really 2008, 2009 through 2012 or so to more recent um, 
cultural and political developments. So the era that I'm talking about in the book, when it's that earlier part, so I do also mention the 2016 election quite a bit. So the material that that you were talking about, though, is um, a lot of what was going on in blogs, um, in blog comment threads, um, a little bit Tumblr from an era when um, the recession was new um, or fairly new. And there was a lot of talk about privilege online, but it hadn't quite solidified into this sort of specific white privilege, male privilege type of conversations mm. that you hear now. So what that at first, and I mean chronologically first, um, instances I'm talking about have to do with privilege callouts where it's not even necessarily all that specific what privilege means other than your fancy, something like that. So your book really focuses on the medium of communication in, in many ways, in terms of the techno technological form of communication. Um, what role in your early stages of formulating this project did your understanding of these kind of new forms of technology play? Uh, for example, I have, I've had Angela Nagel on the show, and she, of course, focused a lot on the uh, advent of Tumblr. As a, as a medium of communication, and, and it, she tries to spell out the implications of that. What was the role of technology in all of this for you? Um, well, first off, I have to read her book. It's like on my list of books I need to read very soon. Um, <laughs> it sounds really fascinating to me, um, and it sounds like it deals with some similar topics. Um, but for me, technology, the role it's played is really when I was first thinking about this was just simply that people do not know who they're dealing with online. And it's very easy to present yourself as a different person and not necessarily to even, it, this doesn't even have to be as far as taking a pseudonym or full on pretending to be somebody else. But that sense that you have when you meet somebody in real life, in person of how, of sort of where they fall in society in sort of which cast they're in, how well-to-do or not, is just absent online. There are little mm -hmm. cues, and certainly if you can Google somebody, you can learn more. But I just found that it was very easy um, in online, and I'm talking now about like, blogs and blog comments, so pre-Twitter, um, or not really pre-Twitter, but before Twitter really took off. Maybe say live journal, something like those, those types of spaces? Live journal may be a little not before my time in terms of I, I just wasn't that aware of live journal, but mm -hmm. so that's not really the area I focus on, but I'm talking about, and this continues to this day um, in comments, something like Jezebel, but basically people who were interacting had not met each other, didn't know who they were talking to. And it was very easy both to make huge mistakes, like to for one person to accuse another of white male privilege and that person is a black woman who was accused or something like that. But also just in a sort of less extreme version of this, one person could tell another, oh, you're privileged, you've clearly always had it easy, and they just don't know because they just both don't know the person well and all of their specific um, life experiences, but also they just don't really have any just sort of immediate sense of who they're talking to. And it's very easy if you sort of are skilled with the language of um, a particular online or political scene to just portray yourself 
by default as the sort of scrappy underdog, which may or may not have any sort of relationship to reality. So you mentioned Jezebel there. Uh, Most of my listeners will be familiar with that website, but tell us a little bit about Jezebel because it seems like the history of that particular website sort of maps on to the birth of uh, you know what what is now known as privilege politics and the kind of the kind of subculture the sub political culture uh, that has sort of originated online about that. Sure. Well, I don't know off the top of my head exactly when Jezebel started. I'm not a mm-hmm. Jezebel right, historian, sure, but sure. what I could say so Jezebel is a women's blog that was um, sort of an offshoot of Gawker, although Gawker, is, which it was. Uh, gossip and politics website went through different incarnations um another whole story the the story of why that um had to shut down is fascinating but kind of a side topic but jezebel still exists it's not exactly a feminist blog although it is sort of unofficially it covers pop culture and women related topics from a sort of youthful political, but not radical um, sort of bent. And there's been some really, really amazing writing on Jezebel. It's not all sort of, uh, I don't want to make it sound like it's some sort of silly website that has nothing going for it. It's had great writers. Like, I mean, the obvious example for me would be Gia Tolentino, who writes for The New Yorker now, and she's Mm -hmm. brilliant. Um, But what happens often in the Jezebel comments and sometimes in the posts themselves are just these sort of cycles of privilege checking um, on all manner of topics where, and by privilege checking, I mean, one person will say, I mean, the example, this is sort of, this seems very 2009 now that I'm saying it, but something like somebody will say in a comment thread, why don't poor people eat lentils and somebody else will say well think about like uh, clearly you have no idea what it's like because you wouldn't necessarily have pots and pans and electricity if you're poor and then somebody else will say but like clearly you don't know what it's like because (laughs) i was poor and we had a, a pot and a pan and we you know and it'll just go into some kind of cycle where um everybody's accusing everybody else of obliviousness rooted in personal experience Mm -hmm. and this happens a lot in feminist spaces online, um, but not exclusively. So that's sort of what I I was talking about there in terms of Jezebel. And many of these themes, certainly, it's not specific to this one website at all. Good, good. So you've painted a good picture there for folks. Um, A lot of my listeners will not have been that politically active in 2009 or even 2012. a lot of this kind of Tumblr politics reached its height, I think, around 2011, 2012. Um, it's sort of transformed quite a bit since then. Um, and we'll get to those transformations in a moment. But you've already sort of raised this notion of privilege. And I want to unpack that a little bit, uh, pun intended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> unpack it. Of course, it. of course. Uh, so the tell us. That's right. So tell you or cover this. In, yeah, absolutely. You cover this uh, in your book quite well in the in the intro. So unpack that uh, privileged knapsack metaphor for us. Okay, so I, I feel like I first have to give a disclaimer that the concept of privilege and the concept of structural inequality these are topics that academia and activism have addressed 
in a whole bunch of ways, some of which I'm aware of and didn't cover in the book, some of which are parts of disciplines and subsets of activism I don't know about. So that's not, this is not the full mm-hmm. scope of the topic, which is pretty much endless. I mean, I was just reading an unrelated book for an unrelated reason, and similar things are, were talked about like in France in the 1960s. So this is none of it absolutely new. But where I start the story for simplicity's sake, and because this is what um, people talking about privilege online frequently refer back to, is with Peggy McIntosh, who's a feminist scholar, in the 1980s wrote this paper that included in it a privilege, a white privilege checklist, where basically she took the experiences she's had as a woman being discriminated against and imagined herself sort of, not imagines herself, sort of put herself in the role of the oppressor, understood sort of how life is if you're black and not white as versus her own person, sort of connecting that to her personal experience of being a woman rather than a man. Mm -hmm. So basically she just came up with this whole list of the things she does not have to deal with the obstacles she does not face. And she described, so she described oppression rather than all the terrible things that the oppressed person has to face as all the things she's spared as a white person. And when I was reading the list, um, for the purposes of the book, and I get into this in the book, it seemed like a lot of very fair points that are valid to this day. It had a few things in there that seemed a bit more specific to her own individual experiences and that couldn't be very much projected onto all white people. But, I mean, the list itself is, for the most part, um, quite sound. The question is more sort of the value in creating such a list. And the reason I bring that up is because what's happened and what interests me more than the initial list itself is that there's, this has just proliferated online where there are these privilege checklists where you can, or privilege quizzes on Buzzfeed. Um, especially there have been privilege quizzes where you can take the quiz and then share it on Facebook and show how privileged you are. And for a variety of reasons, um, that I could, go into this, um, I don't think that that exercise does what it promises. Right. I just want to bring uh, some of my listeners, uh, bring this to their attention if they haven't sort of gone through these moves at the university level, which is, let's be honest, I mean, that's kind of one of the major implications of your argument is that this stream of privilege theory uh, not only originated inside of universities, but that's really where it has the most kind of uh, uh, life, right? I mean, because outside of that space, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for a lot of people. It doesn't have a lot of a, a wide resonance in, in, in the most, uh, you know, immediate experiences of folks. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think that that's partly just to do with people's age and sort of um, life stage at a university. Um, because I think this notion that people would voluntarily give up unearned advantages right. is something that you just can imagine you would do if you're <laughs> a wealthy 19 year old. And right. if you're, even if you're a wealthy, I, I mean, look, if even, even if you're a wealthy 50 year old, it's probably harder already to start picturing doing that. 
Um, so I think a lot of it is a bit specific to that life stage and the sort of idealism that can make more sense then. Right. So some some of these on the checklist are just uh, are, are are kind of commonsensical and and they're good things for people to maybe think about in certain spaces. Um, some of the other things are, are a little bit r- absurd. Uh, one of the ones that 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 I find to be the most troubling uh, is I can go into a music shop and count on finding the music of my race represented into a supermarket and find the food I grew up with into a hairdresser's shop and find someone who can deal with my hair. So there are a couple issues here. <laughs> Number one, it presumes that, you know, dominant culture uh, has to, you know, is, is directly associated with, uh, with, uh, with the white race. And that's just not true. Uh, well, I think the hair one might be right. Um, yes, yes, the hair yeah. one seems right to me. The food one I, sure. I know is untrue because, um, I have a European spouse who is, definitely white and definitely cannot find the foods of his culture in stores in Canada. So, I mean, I think it, it, but I think the, the general gist of it is fair, which is that basically racism plays out in all these subtle ways Mm -hmm. and it's good to be aware of it. And I think the problem with the list approach for me, isn't so much the places where it's a little shaky as what happens when you produce a list like this, and especially what happens when you do so and share it, how is it beneficial to other people to say, look at me, I am privileged, I know that. Like, what does what is that actually doing? And that's where, that's where my issues really come up with this. That's fair. So let me ask a, a quick follow-up, and this, this is outside the scope of your book, but I kind of want to get your take on this. Um, I'm in the midst of my anti-essentialism summer series 2017. <laughs> it's a worldwide tour. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. Over the internet, uh, <laughs> so I can I can travel wherever I'd like. Um, so I've had a lot of guests on to address the question of essentialism when it comes to race and gender and ethnicity and sexuality and all the rest of it. And so I guess one of my main concerns that I'm trying to draw out with, with uh, the sort of question I posed a, a minute ago is to what degree does this list essentialize certain more or less artificial or historically imposed uh, characteristics onto people because we we use this 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 notion my race very in a very sort of um absolutist uh, un, unthinking way when uh, you know perhaps these are distinctions that have been uh, historically historically projected onto people in order to enable their oppression, right? So I guess my question is, uh, to what degree do you find these checklists sort of reify uh, static notions of race that have been historically used to oppress people? Because it seems like that's kind of a double-edged sword here. Um, I think that these, the privilege, the white privilege checklist specifically isn't so much of a problem in that way. But what I think can be a problem, and this does get to the question of essentializing, and this is, oh boy, this is a huge topic, but I'll try to be as concise as I can about it. But basically, I'm thinking now of these, this is related to the privilege checklist, that there are these privilege walks, privilege walk exercises, where on a college campus, for example, you take one step forward if you've had a certain advantage or one step back if you've had some disadvantage or something like that. And 
there's this notion of just that there are these finite privilege categories. Hmm. And I think that that is fine and useful for describing society. But then if you're talking ever about individuals, it doesn't really get you there. And I think that there have been a whole different, there's been a whole range of forms of backlash to the privilege framework, some of which are just straight up racist or sexist and just they're not really um, worth um, taking too seriously. But then there's also the, which I think is worth taking seriously, this question of individual experience not matching up with um, general trends. So you could say that there is systemic racism, there is systemic sexism, classism, and you could keep going. But then if you're talking about an individual person, a checklist doesn't really get to who, whether person A or person B has had it easier because there are so many specific things that enter into that. Um, and I think part of the problem with this sort of privilege approach is that it treats people as just representatives of categories in a way that's um, not accurate to human experience. Right. So it's a little bit dehumanizing in that way. I think one of the ways that some folks have, um, you know, interpreted what you just mentioned there is very quickly devolves into what might be called the oppression Olympics, where people share. And there's a lot of people I don't if you cited if this was I believe it was in your book uh, where you cited the experience of some diversity experts or people who had been to diversity trainings. Um, and they discovered that the students very quickly were sort of mining their history uh, yes, to try to yes, find as that, many oppressions as possible. Maybe tell us that story. Yes. I, well, I, I don't really remember the specifics. I think this was a, possibly a study that I had cited, um, but that basically when white people are told to be aware of their privilege, what they do is um, summon examples of having not been privileged which is, I thought, kind of funny and not at all surprising to me that people in a meritocracy or a society claiming to be a meritocracy will look for the examples of where they didn't have it easy and will highlight those. So making people think about the unfairnesses of who gets to end up where doesn't necessarily end with some sort of reckoning, but it it ends with sort of people trying to figure out how to frame their story as um, upward mobility and self-made to give a self-made narrative to whatever the real narrative might be. Right. I do find that disturbing when uh, I've been on and around college campuses for going well over a decade, but as a graduate student and around that sort of scene for, for a little under a decade. And, and I'm always astounded when I'm approached by an undergrad or, or a fellow colleague and they sort of call me out on a certain privilege thing. And I, I dig a little bit and I, I, I discover that there is really this kind of bootstrapping uh, congratulatory ideology underlying their claims. Their argument is like, well, you didn't earn that. I did. And let me show you how. And it really does rely on this kind of oh, not so not so laudable, um, you know, American ideology about how the people who are successful you know, earned it and had well, right. to pull themselves up. By Absolutely. The and I think what that connects to also, this is another form of privilege call out that I talk about in the book is this way that it's not really socially acceptable to say, 
I'm jealous of such and such person, of their career, of their successes, or even to say, I think such and such person is an idiot and shouldn't have been as successful as they are or whatever. These things are not really so socially acceptable. So what's what often will happen in their stead is one person will call out another, like, let's just for simplicity's sake, one white person will call out another white person and say, aha, they are where they are because of white privilege. And that's sort of a, they might be right in certain respects, but they're also, um, it's also a sort of socially acceptable way of saying, of, of being annoyed that say, I mean, this has come up a lot with Lena Dunham, but also with people who yeah. are from not as well-off backgrounds that surely they are where they are for these unfair reasons. And while that's true in a certain sense, it doesn't explain why the person doing the call out isn't, doesn't have an HBO show, if that makes sense. Right, exactly, exactly. So there are a lot of uh, intersecting uh, and contradictory aims uh, that are that are uh, pursued by by means of privilege theory. So it's it's worthy. It's worth unpacking that. So I think we started the show by spelling out very carefully, and I I, I appreciated your treatment of this. Then I just want to reiterate it. Uh, we here at the Dead Pundit Society. <laughs> believe that oppression is a thing <laughs> and it does that's exist good you believe that yes <laughs> i just want to be clear because i'm going to be accused of this there is absolutely uh, oppression faced by people uh, uh you know that can be broadly summed up along the sort of traditional you know lines of 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 gender sexuality uh race ethnicity class and all the rest of it right um we're not going to get into the weeds about how those intersect or not or relate or don't. But I just want to put that out there. But with that being said, your work really seems to separate the actually existing oppression of our society from the discourses we use to try to understand that. That's absolutely um, right. That was very well put. <laughs> and it seemed, and, and there seems to be a great deal of pushback on that kind of separation. And I, I sort of... I chalk that up to the moralism that exists on in a lot of left and liberal spaces right now. And that you, that, that the actual existing oppression is somehow inseparable from the historically constituted discourses that we use to understand that expression. So tell me a little bit about how that plays out in your work. Um, so I think that there's what I want to make clear is that I think there's a difference between being critical of such phenomena as one white woman telling another white woman that she's a white feminist and it sort of becomes these cycles of nonsense. And on the other hand, somebody who is in fact oppressed speaking out about their oppression with or without the use of the term like privilege. So I think it's certainly fair. Like some people have seen the title of my book, even read some or all of it. And said, you know, but easy for you, you know. Mm. And mm. I think that's an understandable, you know, I think if you see that privilege, um, if you're critical of privilege callouts at all, you have to be clear. And I, I've tried to be clear in the book, although this is something where I think if I would have written it after the election, I'd have been um, even more precise and sort of loud about this in the book that basically it really depends whether you're speaking out against oppression that you're facing or whether you're using 
the theoretical possibility that somebody might be offended as a sort of tool in winning an argument or in making yourself look good. Um, and these are different things. So I don't think that, I, I think that there's a point to be made that basically you can't be overly focused on criticizing discourse and, you know, I guess as the parlance would be silencing people who are speaking out about their oppression. I think you have to be careful with sort of who you're addressing with this. Um, but at the same time, I think it is fair game to talk in the gen in a general sense about which forms of which strategies are effective and which aren't. And I don't think that that's silencing people of any background to do. I think that that's actually very necessary. And I don't, and I think that there, what's come up a lot lately, so this is since I wrote the book, um, is that basically at a time like this, nobody should be talking about how we, like, about rhetoric or discourse or any of that. And it should just be that whoever's the most progressive seeming and has the most followers on Twitter, you just agree with everything they say or something like that. And I don't think that that's, <laughs> getting anyone anywhere. And I cert I don't think so some people argue that that's sort of what caused Trump. I don't think that's what caused Trump. But I think to effectively fight the right, it's more helpful to sort of think of what what are the most effective strategies. And I think that um, a lot of privilege discourse has not been effective. And the most obvious way to look at it is it's developed in the last few years and have things gotten better. And I, I would argue, no. That's right. So Angela Nagel's book uh, has been incredibly, just really unfairly accused of, you know, blaming the left for the rise of Trump and blaming the left for the Ku Klux Klan, uh, you know, uh, murder here in Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago. And, and it's really unfair, first of all, because this is a terrible misread of Angela's thesis. Uh, but she, she's really more in line with what you just said there. It's not it's not so that the left is to blame for Trump or any of the rest of it. But the left has sort of abnegated uh or has sort of vacated the space of these topics of talking to people who don't fit the classic mold of the most oppressed person in the room. And they have, uh, they have left that space to the far right. So uh, an example that's probably near and dear to your heart being at university of Toronto, <laughs> Jordan Peterson, oh, Jordan boy. Peterson is an internet phenomenon you cannot go on youtube these days without seeing his videos featured and so if, if folks don't i know. haven't particularly been following this i mean i i vaguely know who he is and that he's controversial but the details right. yeah it's a different part of the university i think right fair he uh he, he's sort of a classic libertarian classic liberal and he's very much on uh, this sort of free speech uh you know kick uh, which I think is important, but you know he's coming at it from a very free market, uh, hyper libertarian uh, approach, and it's attracting a lot of people who I think would otherwise be on our side, but but they don't sort of have the space and on the left to feel recognized. Well, if, if I could just go sense. back to something you just said about um, about the left only wanting to address the most oppressed. I don't think that that's actually quite what's happening. Um, I think that's often how it's described, and that's often especially how it's described 
sort of on the center left, um, the sort of I'm a liberal, but I hate PC team, if as it were. But I think that that's sort of a misunderstanding. I think what the privilege approach has done is it's a way of maintaining the status quo and of still hearing from the same voices one always would hear from. But now there's this focus on privilege awareness. And the example I always think of for this would be the sort of veneration of the comedian Louis C.K., because he has these bits where he's just so privilege aware and mm-hmm. he's sort of congratulated for this. And it's like the best thing is like Louis CK is aware of privilege of his privilege. And it's, isn't that great. It's certainly better than if he were racist and sexist and generally yeah, a bad yeah, person, yeah. but is that really the pinnacle? And I, I think under the privilege framework, yes, that is the pinnacle is privilege awareness, not actually shifting who gets heard. That's a very good, important corrective. I think, yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you raised that because the, the, the word I like to use on this show is woke the way that woke and wokeness has been appropriated by the kind of uh, the thought leaders of today uh, in, a, in a way to translate this into social status and power that doesn't really change anything in the end. Right. So the focus becomes, um, I think woke entered this sort of mainstream political discourse about while I, while I was writing the book, because I remember having to refer back to like an article as it appeared um, while I was writing But, I mean, it predates the book also. Um, But, yeah, I think that's really it, that there's just this focus on seeming aware of what's going on around you. Um, And I just read some article on Curbed that was about self-aware gentrifiers. And I just, apart from all the specific aspects of the article and gentrification, all of this as a topic, I just found this concept so funny, that this self-aware gentrifier and that this has formed as a concept that somebody you know like that the material factors are so separate from just this but but do they know what's happening and are they sensitive to it and are you know and it just i find that really is like very much our times is this question of being self-aware so it's a notion of that you can cleanse or purify your sense of white guilt uh, through the proper performative gestures or the proper, if you sort of write uh, the right memoir or whatever else. You, you write quite a bit in your book talking about this industry of, of reflecting on one's privilege. You know, I as a white woman, I as a white man, and then there's sort of this, you know, uh, uh, purification ritual that goes on. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So that happens. Um, it's mostly in, and it could, it's possible that this has to do with my own reading habits, but my sense from reading beyond that a bit is that it really is mainly white women doing this. I don't see a ton of, as a white man, I think personal essays, um, simply (laughs) maybe we should see more actually, unfortunately could be, but, um, but this, there's this tendency and the essays I talk about, this is, um, in one of the chapters of my book are strong, well-written, otherwise, no issue with them personal essays where a woman who's white um, will say, um, and I'm glad you bring this part up specifically because this was just quoted um, in Frank Bruni's column in the New York times. And I wanted to like maybe sort of situate that passage a little bit better. Um, I mean, it was situated well in the column, but I want to situate it a little further, but basically 
these disclaimers of privilege, a sort of awareness disclaimers come up in these essays where a woman will say, now I understand that, you know, my experiences are what they are because I'm, and then she'll go through, you know, white, privileged, um, straight, maybe, you know, lives in whichever part of Park Slope in Brooklyn or, you know, there'll be some whole list of... um, Where she shops, where she went to school. Yeah, and it's just, it becomes this, um, I have a lot of sort of complicated feelings, I guess one might say, about those disclaimers, because I think they do a few different things. And um, one of the things they do is they sort of they're about preempting a call out. They're about prevent. They're about getting there before somebody else and say, rather than waiting for somebody else to say, "Well, you don't know what everybody experiences." It's almost sort of saying, "Aha!" But I am aware, and I guess that aspect of it makes me a bit uncomfortable. But at the same time, I think from a feminist perspective, these disclaimers are a problem simply because these are essays often about feminist issues that a particular woman faces and adding a disclaimer is a way of saying but it's not really such a big deal like please don't take this too seriously and I and my thinking is yeah it's probably not the very biggest deal but if you think it's a biggest a big enough deal that you want to write about it own it (laughs) you know and um that's that's fine. It doesn't have to be. And, and then the, the final sort of piece of this is that I think awareness disclaimers like this that exist in essays um, often kind of ignore the fact that somebody less privileged might have the same feelings, might identify with that essay and may not even, and, and it may not even apply. And so one that I talk about in the book is an essay a woman writes about her divorce and the sort of the she describes this as a midlife crisis and she has this aside where she writes about how a black man wouldn't ever have such sort of petty problems or something like that like that you know because of and it's a sort of digression about how things are harder for black men which they are Mm -hmm. but that's sort of a but why wouldn't a a black man getting divorced feel that he's having a midlife crisis that doesn't seem it doesn't really add up and it ends up being in in striving for sensitivity i think it can sort of overshoot the mark so that's that's what that passage and that part of the book is about um and i don't again i don't think that the people who put these awareness disclaimers in are in their essays are somehow like my political enemies or something like that quite the contrary these are people i agree with i have a lot in common with with culturally it's just um it's the disclaimer itself i think it's a problem right and i mean you almost can't even blame them for it because they're ex- they exist in in an ether <laughs> that is sort of outside of their control in terms of how their words will or will not be perceived or potentially attacked and so these are defensive postures absolutely and i i, I wouldn't be shocked if these are coming also from editors who might read hmm an otherwise strong essay and say, but have you considered how this would look? And I know a little bit about this, having been an editor myself. I mean, you know, this is not an unreasonable request for an editor to make or to put in there, you know, like 
have you added something about how you're, you know, you have you situated yourself in this? Because readers will respond. Um, and I also talk about this in the book that um, even if you put in a it, putting the very act of putting in a sentence about how you're privileged invites people to point out that you're privileged, which is something they might not have pointed out otherwise. And this came up in another example I give in the book that's of a young woman writing about how, and this was a sort of a recession essay, so from a few years ago, writing about how she is privileged but broke. And by referring to herself as privileged, I think she just gets a lot of feedback like about how, how privileged she is. But when you actually read the essay, she doesn't have any money. I don't remember if she had she was either very underemployed or unemployed and with no sort of end in sight. She didn't have family support. I mean, that she was not the person suffering most in, on the planet, but it, to say that she was so privileged seemed a little bit misleading. Sure. Yeah. And it, it undermines the potential to link up with other oppressed people on those bases of, of, of being oppressed, right, economically or otherwise, exactly. in order to try to address those problems. Well, that actually gets to a whole even sort of a, like a bigger picture point about this, which is that um, the privilege framework is very much about being careful not to overstate how oppressed you are, being careful to sort of focus on the areas that you where you're a have and not a have not, which makes it um, and I, I think I wrote about this for Quartz at one point um, in terms of this was in terms of the women's strike that cap, that was after the women's march fairly soon after and debates that had happened around that, whether women should ignore who have whichever forms of privilege should be sort of sitting around acknowledging their privilege or striking. And it just seemed that in a bigger picture sense, it's sometimes helpful to sort of see yourself as oppressed and as not the most oppressed, but to sort of connect whatever oppression you're facing with the perhaps greater oppression other people are facing, which that whole process is halted if all you can, if all you feel you're allowed to think is that you're privileged. That's right. That's a very good point. Um, so it's, it seems like this privilege theory, what I want to get to uh, towards the end of the show here, this privilege theory is not, as we mentioned before, it's not the sort of necessary, essential way to frame the actually existing oppression of society. Um, it's kind of a historically constituted discourse, right? That sort of comes out of a lot of, a lot of places. So we'll take that for granted. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That the, the systemic injustices of racism and sexism and homophobia and I could keep going are real and there's a huge part of American society right now um, not prepared to acknowledge that and that's a huge problem so insofar as privilege awareness is about being aware of structures it is a good thing but there's no need to use the privilege framework to understand those structures there are I believe better ways Right. So on the one hand, it's a double edged sword. Right. So um, I think a lot of the, the, the energy that that are, the millennials are, are given credit for in terms of injecting into the political sphere uh, comes from the kind of intense um, 
affective power of this privilege theory framework. And so that's great. I mean, a lot of the Bernie Sanders or the Jeremy Corbyn uh, type of energy that you see is, 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 is sort of the result of some of that, right? But there's also another generative aspect of the theory. And, and I want to ask you about your, your take on this. It seems like privilege theory too easily transforms systemic gripes into injuries that can be easily, more easily managed by the system without threatening it. Does that yes. make sense? Yes, it does. And that's why I wonder about your mentioning um, socialist politicians in this context, because I think that this is often, what's often said is that it's more liberal, sort of progressive, not necessarily socialist politics is where this is more associated um, with in terms of like, rather than sort of changing the structure of society, having a few sort of cosmetic changes like that. I mean, I guess that's um, one aspect of this. Sure. So, so let's make it concrete here. You talk in your book about uh, the role of privilege in the Clinton Sanders primary yes. campaign and the way that uh, that was wielded uh, onto certain commentators and, and so on and so forth. So that's a good concrete way to think about how privilege is, uh, as a theoretical apparatus, is used to either defend the status quo or not. Yes. So that really did the the privilege conversation did kind of explode around the democratic primary and it also had its other whole branch um on the republican side but just to focus for now on the democratic side there was this ongoing conversation certainly on twitter also in articles um where clinton supporters and sanders supporters were accusing one another of privilege often in the sort of framework of imagine being because you know the imagine tweet where you sort of suggest that it's inconceivable that somebody could have a different view than you um it's not just that they're wrong but it's like in unfathomable and you're so pure that you couldn't fathom anyway that's the snark the, yes the snark the, yeah. Just, yeah, the bad faith snark yes and i mean I, I i'm sure i'm bad faith snarky on my twitter too it's it's hard to avoid <laughs> but um yeah oh, I, what I know I am. <laughs> what would happen is basically um the roughly speaking the sanders side would say that if you feel that you can support hillary clinton then clearly you haven't thought about um, other countries that would be surely invaded within a week if, and, and this is, I'm saying from their perspective, should Hillary Clinton be elected, then that clearly you don't have to think about such things as healthcare or um, the price of education, because clearly you're so privileged or else you would be supporting Sanders. Then, you have the Clinton side saying, clearly, if you support Sanders, it's because you're so privileged, you don't need a woman in office. You're okay with there having not been a woman president yet at all. Um, clearly, you're okay with dismissing um, the voting preferences of uh, many people of color. Clearly, you're okay. And this is, again, I'm giving the Clinton side. These, I'm just giving both sides and then I'll give where I stand in this after but that from again from the sort of Clinton side would be clearly um you are so privileged that you don't care about having a democrat who would actually win 
Um, that came up quite a bit, as I recall. Um, so there were basically these two sides accusing each other of not simply being wrong about the candidate, not simply saying Sanders is better, no, Clinton is better, but saying that being wrong on this was only conceivably rooted in privilege. And I think that was just kind of fascinating because I think in a certain sense, everybody was right. Maybe certain forms of privilege were motivating some Sanders supporters and some Clinton supporters. I think that's probably true to some extent. I don't think you can ever point to exact cases of this because it's, you know, voting is more complicated than that. Um, and support for a candidate is more complicated than that. But I thought it seemed, um, given that you could make the case in both directions, and there was really no sort of answer to this, it just struck me as kind of um, not so effective. Right. So it sounds like this privilege theory has really altered the way that we argue and we debate one another. And I mean, not only just across the left-right divide, right, but also within the sort of liberal left progressive sort of sphere, right? Um, as you just mentioned, Nick, so many debates are waged by way of these kind of personal stories and appeals to authenticity, Yes. right? So it's not so much a matter of making debates and trying to persuade people via arguments and facts. It's more so, can I prove and demonstrate that I am the type of authentic, ontologically pure person <laughs> that has the right to even have this debate in the first I place? I think so. And I think it's this weird sort of signaling of authenticity that does not, that sort of paradoxically is about hiding who people really are. And one example, I, I do talk about this in the book, is where Corey Robin, who I agree with about a lot of things, disagree with about other things, had profiled once for Tablet. Um, and he is making a pro-Sanders point that I had agreed with. Um, I did support Hillary Clinton um, initially. Um, so that's, I mean, I, but I have their aspects of Sanders's platform that I strongly also supported and one of them was um, free college and he, he was calling out a New Yorker writer um, a young woman I believe definitely a woman I, I believe fairly young for how privileged she would need to be to I guess support Clinton and it seemed and he but he did this with this kind of enumerating her sort of her CV of privilege, as it were, like where she'd been to school or whatever. And sure, but is he from a different background? No. What was this doing? Why, why did we need to hear about this woman's background? And it also seemed like this sort of elephant in the room was, well, she's a woman. He's not. Maybe on some level she's supporting Clinton for that reason. And isn't that also privilege um, gender? So it just seemed... Why are they even, you know, like the, this shouldn't have been about identity because I think he, he was in the right about the point he was trying to argue. Um, so I found this frustrating also because I wanted him to win the point, um, even yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's the issue is I think there's a way that the right will criticize privileged discourse in order to just kind of laugh at it and say, haha, look at the left eating itself. And if you're actually on the left, it's kind of like 
ah, just don't do this. Just you're not getting points across. This is just sort of pointless. right. It's, it's it's on us to do better, right? Yeah. Whether whether we agree or not, I tr- I've tried to push this as much as possible in in the in the progressive spaces that I'm a part of. It's like we have forgotten to make we've forgotten how to make arguments, right? Yeah. That's part of that's one of Angela Nagel's more overarching points that we got to in this two hour interview that I did with her. Uh, some months ago that I really loved. And she argues kind of like, you know, when at the point when a, a, a political ideology or a culture loses the art uh, or or even the impulse to make arguments for itself, it has become decadent. Hmm. And it it is on the it is necessarily on the decline. And and there's a way in which kind of like progressive politics really, really is the poster child for that really like i mean we we don't really even feel compelled to make persuasive arguments anymore because we code our uh, debate tactics in these kind of battles around authenticity and ontological um you know essentialism in terms of everything that we've just talked about. And I'm really getting into the, the, the hyper theoretical weeds here. So let's take it. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I mean, do that. yeah, I, I don't know about the, the I, I know decadent. You can follow. I, I can follow it. I, I'm not sure if it's the decline. I mean, I, I do, what I do think though, is that it just sort of um, like, I don't know about whether I say in the big picture, it's a decline, but what I would say is that it has, and this is something I also address in the book, that it has, prevented um, the, a sort of really intense embrace of this, privilege framework has prevented the left from really pushing back at least until maybe last the last week or so against Trump because there is the sense that well you know the white working class even though he has all these wealthy supporters you know but that it's the really the you know to understand the cultural feelings of lack of privilege and it becomes then that it's sort of not PC to criticize Trump and he wins then you know, and well, he did win. And now, yeah. So I think it's the left can make its own job more difficult sometimes. Right. It seems that we should be attracting folks that we can align ourselves with in a variety of ways. And we shouldn't be ruling them out offhand because they have certain, uh, you know, privileges that, uh, that other folks, other, other folks don't. I think that's kind of what, to make it as more my what I just sort of spewed out there a second ago, more concrete, we could be building larger, more effective coalitions if we focused on the things that we had in common, right? It's always a risk. It's always, you're always dealing with the potential that within those coalitions, there are going to be hierarchies and there's going to be blind spots that a lot of people have in terms of not seeing the oppressions that are faced by people. But it strikes me that, you know, fighting together on those terms at least, you know, brings forth the possibility of victory. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this question of sort of like how big of a tent to sort of have and um, just how accepting to be of people who, I mean, I think there was this extreme example just now where somebody decided he was owed a column in the New York Times to say that he supported Trump until five minutes ago, like actively supported him. And now he's changed his mind. So that's something else. That's like a kind of extreme case. But this question of if somebody is sort of new to politics, new to activism, new to even just be kind of generally aware of the world, and that could be because they're very young, maybe they're just, you know, only started reading the newspaper, but at any age, really, is the point to say, oh, clearly you're so privileged that you only started thinking about this now, or is it, you know, 
it's good you're thinking about it you know mm-hmm. like let's move forward now so let's yeah. see what we can agree on for for common for right common right and i think there is just this way that the privilege framework um forbids overestimating is really so focused on don't overestimate how oppressed you are that prevents people from finding common ground and um and pushing back um because if, if you're just only ever sort of sitting there writing a gratitude list you can be exploited by your employer for example but feel like well but i'm privileged i have nothing to complain about really and then you don't you know you don't organize. So I think, yeah, I think these are um, things to keep in mind. Right. It turns into a way of counting your blessings, right? By right. ignoring the things that you should be trying to work to change. Right. right. All right. So let's get to some more contemporary examples. Um, recently, Taylor Swift, who is fighting an assault, uh, and a, a sexual assault, you could sort of spell that out for us and lay it out for people who don't follow this stuff. She has been rendered problematic, but also a, le- a legitimate victim. What's going on there? So there's a headline that I'm kind of fascinated by in a store. And it's a, this bizarre article that I, in a weird sense, agree with and think is kind of necessary, but is also bonkers in a variety of ways I will explain. It's an article <laughs> in The Advocate um, it's a gay publication. The article itself has no particular um, gay angle, though. It's just, it's a sort of one of these think pieces that could be pretty much anywhere. And it's called Taylor Swift has been problematic, but still deserves support during her assault trial. That's the headline. And it's an accurate And headlines, I know this as a writer myself, headlines can be sometimes very far from the content. This is um, a fair description um, of the content. Of the thesis. It's not not a clickbait, uh, in other words. It's not clickbait. I mean, the whole sort of piece itself is, in a sense, clickbait, but it's not the headline (laughs) that's doing it. It's not the headline that's doing it. Um, But what I found so fascinating about this is, um, well, first of all, there's that word problematic. And I talk about, like, one of my chapters is called the problematic fave. Um, And I talk about what sort of problematic means when the cultural product is described that way. But if you just look at this headline, Taylor Swift has been problematic, but still deserves support during her assault trial. Yes, true. Taylor Swift, even if she has made a music video with cultural appropriation in it. And I have not followed these stories deeply enough or Taylor Swift deeply enough to know whether that's the case or not. But even let's say she has, let's say there was cultural appropriation in her music video. She still did not deserve to be, to have her ass grabbed non-consensually. I mean, that's, of course, that seems sort of obvious. But I guess what this headline and and the piece itself um, kind of, get at is well why is that even a question are there people you know are there people even saying this or is this an idea the author is bringing to is sort of planting you know what i mean like is this the author's own notion that people even would because it's not very persuasively argued in terms of examples like the has there been a real silence because the i saw this article but i also saw my twitter feed had all these um, prominent feminists taking Taylor Swift's side pretty loudly. So it seemed like this, the, the 
deafening silence of people not supporting Taylor Swift because she's been problematic. I was not seeing this, but who knows? Everybody has. Yeah. It props up a really phony kind of like position staking that you have to then do, right? Are you, whose side are you on? Are you on the side that she's problematic or are you on the side that she deserves to be, you know, exactly uh, aggrieved by this? And it's just really phony. Well, exactly. And then it, it, it feels like the, the writer doesn't want to simply say, let's defend Taylor Swift, but wants to go with this whole sort of disclaimer first. So the article, um, which I have open now and um, can refer to, it exp- It begins with a paragraph explaining that um, people have called her out for her privilege, so now I'm quoting her privilege, her repeated use of cultural appropriation in her videos, and her claiming to be a feminist while also displaying an utter lack of awareness that problems exist for women outside those she's experienced as a wealthy, thin, cisgender white woman. And ah, there it is. It's, it's just this whole notion that, um, that we have to first discuss the crime that is being Taylor Swift. And then we can say, but you know what? Actually, you, you're still allowed to care that she was, or not even just to care that she was assaulted for her personally, which would be a nice thing to do, but also just, she, you know, this is something many women have dealt with, um, been groped. Um, this is something that's happened to me. This is something that's happened, I don't want to say to all women, but certainly to a lot of women. And to have a woman in the public eye speaking out about this, yeah, because she has more of an option to than some other women. But great, you know, I, I guess it, it didn't seem to me that you have to first apologize before taking Taylor Swift's side in this. And I felt that this just this piece really just summed up so so much about our times that that the story has to first be this whole sort of digression about problematicness before um, you're allowed to say, "Gee, sexual assault isn't the greatest thing." So, can I just say? Can I just suggest one thing that's underlying all of this? Because uh, we we went from twenty, you know, two thousand nine to twenty eleven, twenty twelve, and then we sort of fast forwarded to twenty seventeen. The, the the thing that sort of changed between the early privilege knapsacking uh, call out sort of culture and today is that you've had five, six, seven years of just people being awful to one another online people have been dragged you write about people losing their jobs because of things that they said on twitter that were deemed to be problematic that's john ronson's Um, book that i cite um he talks about this yeah Yeah. it's a great book and so the bottom line is you know we're living now in an era where people are terrified they are walking on eggshells and and like you know it's I, i never really know what to say to that because it's like well it's good that people are attuned to the potential reactions and experiences of, of people other than themselves. Like that's a positive <laughs> advance in many ways. We, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, we don't want the opposite either. Well, I think what's resulted, what's resulted is, and I find this very hard to sort of describe and um, even just to make sense of, which is that there's on the one hand, there is this tremendous fear in some parts of society, certainly not all, of making some kind of slip up and of, oh my goodness, what would happen? Twitter would come at me. It would be so humiliating. And um, 
And then on the other, there's this sort of, but, but does anything generally happen? Um, people are still in the actual lived world in the workplace all over saying all kinds of and doing all kinds of racist and sexist things. And that is, that has not stopped this sort of, it's this illusion that the Twitter pylon army can, is constantly, you know, preventing anybody from saying anything, but I don't think that it actually is. It is just in enough cases to get the sort of other side very riled up, but it isn't actually all that powerful. So you have then somebody like Trump, who, you know, his whole thing is that he tells it like it is, you know, and that's, that's his appeal to the people who find that so appealing. And I think what's, what's happened is basically that there's been just enough of this sort of, like, so-called policing on Twitter and um, earlier in other spheres as well, um, that there's this sense that the the so-called PC police would be coming to get you, but that isn't actually the case for the most part. Um, and this notion that there's this all-powerful group of marginalized people who prevent anybody from ever saying anything seems... I mean, a lot of the times I'm just thinking, like, if only there were. I mean, but that's <laughs> yeah, not... Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's just what's happened is now that there's these kind of extremes where either there's this, on the one hand, there's this kind of, um, and I'm not saying this to say there's some sort of equivalency at all, but that, you know, on the one side, there's all this really truly hateful speech and indeed physical violence. And it's um, gotten so, so much worse, even in, uh, as I understand it, the past week. Um, That's right. The past couple of weeks. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there's a lot of sort of a lot of self-policing, even just on the left of just sort of this fear about slip ups and such. And I think what might be beneficial is to focus less on people who are on the right side being flawed and problematic and more on how to not necessarily to understand and sympathize with, I'm saying how to fight fascism and white supremacists and all of this. That's right. So it's, it also kind of sounds like this hysteria on the right that, that, Oh, there's this mob of PC people who are out to get us, you know, now clearly you, you rate, you, you rightly point to the fact that that's just not fundamentally not true, but it also kind of comes from some of these, the worst elements on, on the left or progressive side of things. That kind of stems, isn't that their own perception of themselves though? Don't they kind of envision themselves as a righteous army that's there to, to kind of uh, take on all challengers. So it's, it kind of sounds like, yes, it's, it's materially not true. But it's it's kind of a projection of their own self. I don't know if they consider themselves to be. I think they. I think that people who are on Twitter and are like just to give like an example, like like Black Twitter, which is obviously not one monolithic thing. But like there was some controversy a while back. Some article, I think it was in the Nation, where an Asian American writer wrote something that several Black writers considered to be racist and everybody involved was more or less on the left and i 
unfortunately don't remember the details of this, only that it had something to do with MTV News. And I'm not sure anybody involved is still at MTV News for other reasons. So in any case, the point is, it had seemed, I was just sort of reading the tweets about this. Um, it seems in a certain sense, like the people doing the call outs were very powerful and like really could, you know, have the potential to make somebody more than just feel bad, but like really lose their job. But from what I sort of followed from afar, it does not seem like this writer has not had a career since then. You know what I mean? Like, I think things can seem huge when like enough people sort of speak up on Twitter, but then I'm not sure that the sort of, and then you never heard from this person again, narrative actually is playing out. You know what I mean? Okay, so I, I think I see. I think then there's these separate issues where, you know, where people are called out for being not just offensive in an otherwise somewhat left-wing article, but something like where somebody's participating in a white supremacist rally and then the fired and all of this, which there I think the question that that poses is something else, which is really more the question of when the wrong people are identified who are I mean, when it's not actually that person, and then that's its own um, question. The whole doxing and, and collective justice kind of thing. There's a, there's an article that came out today about a man. I think he was in Ohio or, or maybe Wisconsin. Who, long story short, had to hide in his friend's basement because he had been uh, mistakenly doxed, and his address and the names of his wife and children, I believe, were were put out there as well. And so you can see how this can get ugly really quickly. So let's transition to finish up here on on the latest tragedy. Sure. Uh, but it brings out some of these things in very stark form. Uh, you mentioned off-air an article in Jezebel uh, talking about the Charlottesville incident. Tell, maybe tell tell our listeners about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so there was a a post on Jezebel called White Women, This Moment is Not About Your Brand. Now, while I wrote about it from a different perspective, um, well, not from a different perspective, from a different angle um, for a New Republic article that came out yesterday, but while just sort of reading about it, it's very subtly mentioned within the post that the writer herself is a white woman. I googled her. I found some photos. It seems pretty clear she's a white woman, but it's like it's also in the post, but just very discreetly there. So there's no like as a white woman sentence. So that's sort of a bit evaded, if that makes sense. And it has a, the illustration, it's this picture of a white um, manicured, presumably woman's hand pointing a finger up. And it calls out white women who have made both the Charlottesville violence and also just sort of the Trump presidency into sort of made it all about them. And the paragraph that had jumped out at me was this um, here that was, uh, don't do not be a white woman who uses a white supremacist uprising to quote, find her voice. Do not be a white woman who dresses up a tweet about her book deal. And then I see the book deal. I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, this is probably not about me personally because I've written a book, but does the, this is probably some sort of like inter-writer issues going on. But anyway, right, I'll finish the... Going on there. Yeah, maybe there's somebody 
I couldn't even figure out which writer, okay, but dresses up a tweet about her book deal in the language of right, righteousness while black and brown people are suffering. Do not be a white woman who uses a tragedy to promote her brand. So this is key, this part, this promote her brand. And I'll talk about that. Um, do not be a white woman who talks when you have nothing to say. Now, in this piece is, so that's the end of the paragraph. Now, so in the piece's defense, I think it's true that there's a way that certain narratives can sort of form where people have whatever their topic is and will, you know, weave whatever's happening in the news to kind of focus on that. And if you look at what happened in Charlottesville and you say that the main thing that this really shows is how sexist society is, that's not really the main thing it shows, I don't think. And I think it's fair to point that out. Um, and I think that's true. I think it's also true that people are self-promotional. I don't think that I don't think that there's really much avoiding that in our society. I don't really know um, how you can be, a, you know, a, an opinion writer and not be at all self-promotional. So I think that aspect of it, and that was sort of where the hypocrisy aspect comes into it, which is, you know, well, how is this not the same thing? You know, if you're writing, yeah, yeah. unless unless she was misleading about it in the post and despite the photos is in fact a person of color, in which case I would assume she would have pointed that out somewhere along the line, responding to the many, many people on Twitter who've said, what are you doing the same thing? But, um, I think, so the aspect of it that had interested me, um, that I wrote about for the new Republic was that one of the white women she calls out is actually, not just Jewish, but has written about her sort of interactions with the online Nazi brigade. So was she really dealing with all of this as a white woman or maybe as a Jewish woman, which would seem a little more likely because Nazis. But, um, but then I think just in terms of the, um, the, what this also really just sort of reminded me of was what I talk about in the book in terms of this question of um, sort of white women trying, to, white feminist women trying to position themselves as that they're not the white feminists with like the capital W, capital F. It's these other white women are the white feminists. Mm -hmm. And this becomes yeah, yeah, this yeah. kind of um, silly <laughs> conversation because, you know, the whatever inherent ignorance there is that comes of being white is going to be true of everybody who's white, not just, you know, there's no sort of higher plane of awareness where you're somehow out of that. It seems like the, the, at the real heart of this with the branding hypocrisy and then the, I don't know, like uh, awareness jockeying that you're talking about that goes on with who can absolve their white guilt the best or something. It all boils down to personalizing or individualizing 
what are actually like societal systemic uh, features, right? Like you, you, you rightly point out, like we can lament the fact that we are all now our own personal brands, right? Mm -hmm. We're our own personal brand representatives. We are our own PR departments Mm -hmm. nowadays. Thank you, neoliberalism, (laughs) right? We can lament that. And I think some people do it more or less in a, in a more or less self-aware fashion. Uh, But, but, you know, we all have to do that. Right. Um, and right. so it seems to me that addressing those systemic problems at their root is a far more pressing matter than blaming individuals. Well, absolutely. And I don't I don't want to sort of add to this by making it seem like the big issue here was this particular writer's rather profound in this particular case, maybe not in general, lack of self-awareness. Because I think the bigger issue for me, apart from the Jewish angle, which I think is also a very big deal, but I've already written quite a bit about, um, is that um, it winds, it sort of lands in this weird sort of sexist position, right? Where it's brand building, if it's a young woman, a young photogenic woman, specifically in this case, it seemed to be uh, Lauren Duca, the um, Teen Vogue writer who was on the Tucker... Carlson, is that right? Show. Yeah, Tucker Carlson right. show, yeah, yeah. And she's somebody who I think just sort of anecdotally from the internet ha- inspires a lot of sort of Lena Dunham like who is this young woman Re- and why resentment. is she such a <laughs> resentment? That's the that's the word. That is the word that, you know, it just to me this seemed very much like you know, the the impulse to be annoyed when a young woman, especially an attractive young woman, is sort of suddenly successful, it's just it's it it shouldn't get framed as a sort of righteous political point, and certainly not if the person making the point is demographically the same. I think if the author, and this is where I guess I disagree with um, some other people, I mainly agree with on these issues. I think it matters the writer's identity. I think if a black woman would have written the same exact article and if this was really coming from a place of personal, not like legitimate resentment of racism and of only white women getting a platform or mostly, or, you know, in, in these cases, I think that would be different than if it's just sort of, aha, look, all these white women are talking then, but here's another, like why add another white woman talking to this and then indeed the black woman screenshotted in this post was annoyed at both um the post's author and the person she was annoyed at in the screenshot because it was sort of she used the word columbusing in a tweet that her tweet had been columbused and then the yeah so it all got it was a sort of amazing internet controversy on all the levels But the apart from it being just sort of inadvertently sort of incredibly entertaining, what what the serious aspect of this is, is it feminist to be saying that certain women should just sort of be quiet if in the world we live in, if Lauren Duca is more quiet, is her spot going to a woman of color or is it going to a white man? Well, realistically I would suspect a white man. I think there are ways to, I I don't think that feminism has reached the point where 
where the issue is really that Lauren Duca needs to be quiet, I think it's more, um, there need to be more women of color, perhaps, um, also taking some white men's spots, as it were, if that makes sense. You know, I think like the way this, this all played out just struck me as, um, again, it would have seemed different to me coming from a woman of color. It would have. Yeah, I think you're, you're, so it just highlights how the discourse is just so difficult to navigate because on the one hand, you're absolutely correct. Like representation matters, but who's to say that, uh, like Lauren Duca's position is any less principled or maybe less like potentially strategically successful than any other woman of color. I mean, I, I don't think like, I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, I just want to fit like we can certainly, I mean, I don't want to attribute the goodness or badness of anyone's argument to their the pigmentation in their skin, right? Like, I think we can all name really atrocious thinkers from every racial and ethnic category uh, across the world. And so I think we really have to do better than that. And we have to rely on actual arguments that people are or are not making. Well, I think, I think there are cases where um, identity matters and in speech and that I think this would be one where it does. I think the value of this argument, if, if the argument is white women should be quiet and it's coming from a white woman, it's inherently, yeah, I see your point. you see what I'm saying? And I also just think more broadly, apart from this specific, not so great take is just that if it's about speaking about your own group suppression, I think there is a value in hearing from the people who are facing that oppression. I think that that's true. And I don't, I don't think that it can be automatically sort of projected into every time, like every time I speak about sexism or anti-Semitism, am I correct? Obviously not. I mean, I'm just one person and there's tons of Jewish women who would disagree with me on tons of issues. Um, but I think there is certainly value in listening to people who have experienced certain things. I think the problem is certainly in treating people as just their identity categories and in assuming that somebody's argument is inherently correct just because of who they are. I think that's where, when it gets to be the sort of reductive way, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah, right, right. So what I was trying, what I was getting at is this, and we can sort of finish up on this and try to figure out how we can maybe move forward. This is the big sort of, uh, so what do we do now question, which is, you know, where you now have to uh, come up with all of the answers to all of our problems. But (laughs) what I want to suggest, yeah, let's do it. What I want to suggest is like this stay in your lane mentality was, is, has been necessary. It is an important critique, as you rightly mentioned there. That would have been a potentially useful critique if it would have come from a woman of color in some senses. I mean, it, it would have at least been worth reading and listening yes, to. Yes, and, sure, mm-hmm, right? and in fact, there were some women of color on Twitter who agreed with the article, and that made me take it more seriously than I would have if it were Perhaps, just this right. one. And, yeah. and, and how can you not? Like, we can kind of roll our eyes about that in, in private, but but we have to acknowledge, like, that's a, that's a real thing. But I guess what I'm getting at is, the stay in your lane has sort of become a slogan uh, that has lost its way or its content. Because I guess what I would want to know there is like, stay in your lane, why? 
You know, I, I, I hear this mm-hmm. coming a lot from younger people, less mm-hmm. sophisticated thinkers, not so much, you know, columnists or uh, prominent Twitter figures. Uh, but also I hear it there. I guess the question I would want is, you know, from an undergrad, right, who just took a, a gender, women and gender studies or, or AFAM studies course, right, who sort of like parrots this stay in your lane mentality. I would say, okay, maybe you have a point there. But let's develop like your arguments as to why in this particular case it is important for people to stay in their lane and what kind of you know world or strategic viewpoint that will better contribute to, uh, you know, in, in in terms of once again getting back to being able to make arguments instead mm-hmm. of just using analogies and slogans. Yes, that makes that makes complete sense to me, and I I think I have sort of an answer whether it's the answer or not is another (laughs) question but i think that two two things need to be balanced so on the one hand you want to make sure that the platform isn't always going to the most privileged person in every situation so to just give like one sort of example of this you could talk about lgbt rights should there should one only ever be hearing about LGBT rights from cisgender, gay, white men who are well off? Would that be helpful or not? Well, no, of course that's not ideal. You know, you don't want that. So there's that that aspect of it that you don't want to always just put whoever's in. You know, you don't you don't always want to center, or you don't in, in general want to center the sort of most privileged among the oppressed that doesn't work. However, you can't have it so that the moment anybody has any sort of platform, they are inherently privileged and shouldn't speak. So you also don't want to have a situation where, for example, you're saying that because somebody's like that somebody who's both black and sort of upper class shouldn't speak because they're upper class and they shouldn't speak about racism because they actually have it easy because then, well, you know, who has a platform in an Irish society? Well, you know, it's a classist society, so you can't really do that. So that's sort of one angle of this. But the other, um, and this gets back to what we were talking about a bit earlier in terms of the stay in your lane aspect is, do you want to have sort of a big tent of opposition to the far right, and if you can even call it far right, if it's the Republican president, do you want a huge opposition to the right that includes as many people as possible and really sort of gets rid of it? Or do you want to really focus on sort of who's centered and making sure you're centering the people who've been oppressed for the longest, who've been oppressed the most? And I think this, these two things are simply intention, you know what I mean? To some extent, I think that, and that there's no, um, I don't think there's a really easy way out. Although I think what is sort of, I guess, reassuring in a sense is that the loudest, most powerful, most, not loudest, that's not really, that's not really correct, but the, there so much resistance has been coming from people who are traditionally marginalized in different ways. So that I don't think there needs to necessarily be this sort of hypersensitive attempt to center uh, women, women of color, people of color in general. I don't think that needs to necessarily happen through some sort of process of granting voices to the voice. I think these voices are already out there and speaking up, I think. To some extent, this may just sort of be happening naturally. 
because that is who's impacted. That's right. It sounds to me like um, it brings to mind something one of my guests said a few weeks ago is that like on the one, if you center and you obsess about marginality and you valorize marginality for marginality's sake, you'll find that the room that you're organizing, you know, you're having your organizing meeting in, uh, you, you could gather those people up and, and, and fit them inside of a phone booth. Right. And so like, um, I think like valorizing mar- marginality should be something that we're working together to try to overcome. I guess is what I'm saying rather than reifying it for its own sake. Like we should be working together to overcome the extreme oppression and marginality faced by these groups. Right. And I think there should also just be a sort of broader, like error error on the side of a broader definition of who's oppressed and that's okay. So that would mean both that it would mean a, a white woman oppressed, a rich black person oppressed, and not that that's all they are is oppressed in either case, certainly not, but that to basically say, if you feel personally hurt by the Trump administration, rather than thinking, oh, but other people have it worse and ending it there and just sort of use your feeling of hurt to empathize and to build coalitions and to sort of you know, resist together rather than sort of counting your blessings and staying home, if that makes sense. Um, So rather, so I think the privilege framework in its emphasis on sort of this guilt-induced gratitude is about urging people to not feel like victims because they're not the real victims. And I'm saying if the feeling that you're a victim is channeling something that's productive and that isn't just self-centered and that does lead to, you know, helping lift up groups that are, you know, if, it, if it's leading to some sort of rational assessment of um, who haves and have-nots are in our society, maybe that's a necessary first step. And rather than just telling, you know, if if every white woman thinks, oh, I'm just so privileged and, you know, doesn't resist Trump, that's not the helpful direction, if that makes sense. I think there's a way to sort of have a recognition of your own oppression lead to recognition of others' still greater oppression rather than um, that it would just lead to some sort of narcissism, which I guess it can, but it's not guaranteed to. Right. So it sounds like what you're just describing there is what some folks have called call-in culture. Right. Instead of call-out culture, perhaps. I think so. Yeah. Um, I've seen that a couple times. I don't know if it ever quite caught on as much as calling out, like, as a term. But <laughs> Let's hope. So it sounds like you're, you're promoting uh, the call-in culture. It's, uh, I think it's a, a much more productive, a productive strategy for moving forward. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, you know, I typically have people, not typically, but often have people from the hard left, and it's too easy just to say, oh, yeah, well, sure, our problem is we just need to get rid of capitalism. Uh, but unfortunately... <laughs> Um, there are a lot of problems that are faced, as you mentioned, both on the left and the right and in the center. And it seems like privilege theory is something that uh, can be identified in all realms of the spectrum. And so it's useful to uh, sort of call those out um, uh, throughout all of those spaces rather than just uh, valorizing our side or whatever at the expense of the other. Uh, sure. Does that sound about right I to you? I think so. I mean, I, I guess I'm just, I'm now reminded by that I, that I haven't really discussed the whole place of um, 
I mean, I'm on the left myself, but I'm saying I haven't discussed the place of privilege theory on the right, which is its own whole other several hours discussion. So I won't do that now. But but yeah, it, it certainly exists um, across the political spectrum and is, if anything, I think more dangerous on the right um, because it's kind of wrapped up in right wing populism, which I find quite dangerous. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That, that's a topic for another show. <laughs> yes, but exactly. But right that's to bring that yeah. up. Your book provides a lot of food for thought. So if folks want to uh, think through the kind of horrors we're facing today in our post-Charlottesville world, pick up Phoebe's book, The Perils of Privilege. It's really great. Uh, it's, 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 it's a fun read. A lot of good uh, anecdotes and narrative stories there uh, in, intermixed with some good politics as well. So Phoebe, thanks for coming on the Dead Punnett Society. I really appreciate it. Adam, thanks for having me on. <laughs> And that was our show. Thanks again to Phoebe Maltz-Bovey for coming on the Dead Punnett Society. Once again, the book is The Perils of Privilege. It's really good. It's a fun read. She has a good uh, journalistic style to her writing because, I mean, as she mentioned, uh, that is her background. And, uh, you know, really, it is the story of our lives, people. She's writing about... Uh, stories and narratives that you will be familiar with if you've been on the left for any amount of time. Uh, Going all the way back to 2009, 2008, uh, all the way to 2015-16, she's telling stories that you will be familiar with, uh, mentioning figures that you will know, in some cases love or hate. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like if I was, if my writing was worth a shit, this would kind of be like a memoir, right? Of my own time on the left. And I really enjoyed it. You will too. So buy the damn book people. A lot of really good episodes coming up in the next couple of months uh, and weeks for you guys. We're going to push this socialism for regular ass people series. I'm really stoked about it. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, socialism is for everybody. And uh, it's about time we started acting that way. It's about time we started acting as though our message uh, was for the masses rather than the few self-selected cult members you know, that, that post too much on Twitter or whatever else. So good stuff coming up. Talking to Connor Kilpatrick next week. He is a columnist and notable socialist commentator. Uh, and uh, his his article in the print version of Jackman this month uh, is about Tony Mazaki, legendary Tony Mazaki, labor leader. Uh, Adolph Reed was good friends with him when uh, Tony was still alive. So we're going to talk about his impact on the environmental movement of all things. You know, labor and environment are not two things that are often talked about together. They're often at, at loggerheads, actually. So it's an interesting piece. It deserves a lot more attention. So we're going to talk about Connor. Uh, we're going to talk to Connor about that rather next week. And you're all going to enjoy that a lot, I promise you. A lot of good episodes coming up on the relationship between the Democratic Party and the left, going back to the 1960s and 70s into the neoliberal period. I've also got another episode talking about the birth of the third way and triangulation politics, starting with Bill Clinton. A lot of good stuff coming, people. I'm just going to tease that for you. Not going to get into the details. I don't want to spoil it, you know. Anticipation is 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 is. is 
you know, the key to pleasure, people. You can, you can use that in other aspects of your life, if you know what I'm saying. So, <laughs> in any case, check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Find me on Twitter at deadpundits. Find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash society. Press the follow button and get all the updates there. In any case, the series of fall 2017 is going to be socialism for regular ass people. Get excited about it. I know I'm excited about it. We're here to reach the masses, people. We're not going to stop till we win. Might be a while, though. But in any case, we'll try to have fun while we're doing it. So, until next week, dead pundit. Dead pundit.